Good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Lit. My name is Reginald Harris, and it's a great pleasure to have you here and also to have our wonderful lineup of poets to uh, kick us off uh, reading and talking about poetry this morning. Let's see, starting right here, uh, we have poet designer and founder of Camber Press, Ron Egotz, who's the author of Beneath Stars Long Extinct. Uh, winner of the Glimmer Train Poetry Award and the Greensboro Poetry Award. Ron is, and let me tell if this is still correct, you're currently being filmed for a documentary on the state of contemporary American poetry. Um, next to him is uh, Ron Murillo, uh, Afro-Chicana poet and playwright. Ron's the current J.C. and Ruth Hall's Poetry Fellow at the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing. Uh, former instructor with DC Writers Corps down the road, uh, two-time winner of Larry Neal Writers, uh, Writers Award, uh, and his choreo play, Trigger, commissioned by Edgework Dance Theater, is scheduled for production in early 2011. John's book is Up, Jump the Boogie. Um, Paul Nelson, uh, author of The Time Before Slaughter, co-founder of Northwest Spoken Lab, uh, venue for written and performed poetry in the Seattle-Tacoma area, and past president of the Washington State Poets Association. So welcome. January Gill O'Neill, author of Underlife, a finalist for the Four Ward Book of the Year Award and the 2010 Patterson Poetry Prize. Uh, you may have seen her in Poets and Writers Magazine in January, February, in the Inspiration Issue as one of their 12 debut poets. And she's a senior writer editor at Babson College, runs a popular blog called Poet Mom, which we are all going to be on before we yeah. blink. And last but most definitely not least is Shelley Puhak, uh, our own Shelley, a writer in residence at the College of Notre Dame, here, widely published poet and essayist, who's also led numerous workshops for writers of all ages and abilities. And we're very happy to have you here as well to represent our, the hometown. Before we get uh, started and have people uh, read, and uh, we're basically going to read in pretty much the order that I just said, sort of alphabetical by, uh, by last name, um, I wanted to begin by asking you all, since you all have collections, how did you all start? How did you decide, how did you decide which poems were going to go into the collection? Basically, how did you create them? And is there an overarching theme to... To, to the book, to your books, to your various books. Ron, you want to talk about your book? Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to all the hard work I've done at City Lit and this beautiful library. I feel fortunate to be here. To answer the question, I, I kind of, uh, this is actually my eighth book of poetry and the first one that got published. So uh, I work them like a period of maybe about three years apiece, and they're kind of poems that belong together, it seems, and there's sections within the book that you know, seem to uh, have thematic qualities that belong together. So uh, uh, they all belong together. You know, they, they, they're, they're developed together in a... Um, one is not started and then worked on until it's completed. I work about probably 45 drafts on each one. So I'll, I'll work a group of poems at the same time. And then eventually uh, I'll feel that it's finished and it'll be slotted in as far as the the rhythm of the book is concerned i lay them out on the floor and i try to find similar themes that uh, belong together um and i, I don't know I, I don't know if that answers your question sufficiently but that's kind of the way i, I work them so would you like me to read my stuff and okay let's see if maybe i should uh get a thing here how, how long would you like me to go um we've got uh, everybody's got 10 10 minutes you got it okay I'm going to read a poem called Chart into Midlife Straits. Chart into Midlife Straits. 
Your girlfriend's underwear has less surface area than a square of toilet paper. You love her for this, among other things, but this is way up there. Then things change. Days leave you as you left other women. Unconsciously, or without a word, or with it being no one's fault, days do what they want. Your heart, which got you into this, pumps less efficiently. Your hairline on the run for the back of your head. You play certain parts of your skeletal system, like percussion instruments, and bathroom trips bring more pleasure than you ever imagined. Surgeons cut things out, you keep going. Jar lids are tighter. Your own underwear gets larger, even if your waistline doesn't. Suits aren't so bad. Your life soundtrack plays just fine as instrumentals. Your parents' faces only clear in photos. Your friends reproduce with alarming regularity. But you're free, wifeless, looking back across temporal planes for the child you were not as a boy. Better than the alternative, you cast off your years lashed together as a raft, your massive underwear a sail for the breezes of old age, eyes fixed on the razored horizon for a hint of the man they told you you'd be. Um, here's a poem that reminds me of uh, Baltimore because uh, I asked Dr. Michael Salzman the uh, art historian and art collector and neurosurgeon at Johns, Johns Hopkins who uh, uh, did some fact-checking on this poem for me. It's called Valve Job. The scalpel slides across his shaved chest like a kitchen knife on top a quarter pound of butter. I clamp back the folds, windows to a life. The breastbone gleams at me like a Thanksgiving bird's left over from one of my mother's holiday meals, my mother who above all in life wanted me in this business. The osteotome makes quick work of splitting Mr. Apgar's sternum, and there lies the pericardium, translucent smoking jacket shrouding the heart, where our goal reclines, a faulty aortic valve, it doesn't look good, but we've been here before. A lifetime of bacon, vodka, tobacco, and television. I don't judge, just ask for the next tool necessary. It's not our business why Mr. Apgar did this to himself. A childhood lacking love, the wrong wives in cereal, and his own children's heartache. At 53, he's got more coming. We keep working and slush the heart with ice to cool things down, to buy us more time. And uh, I'm going to read, since we're in this beautiful, beautiful building, this wonderful library, I'm going to read a poem about a librarian. This is called Elementary School Librarian. Mrs. Harkins, even your name was harsh. What made you this way? Was it some late 19th century book on child rearing your parents read? Perhaps you received the business end of it, a razor strop to break the will of the curious child. You tried to break ours by starting with our names, the first word we learned, the first word we wrote. You made up your own pronunciations. Dowdy was Dockerty, Nuzzy became Nootsy. You smacked our fingers when we didn't turn pages the way you liked, until some parent's lawyer reminded you corporal punishment was dead. Harkins, you made fun of the way some of us spoke. You did this before our classmates. You did this wearing tight leather skirts and knee-high leather boots. 
Our young teachers rolled their eyes at your outfits when you weren't looking. Maybe imagining a cat of nine tail hanging from your bedroom doorknob? Your husband ball-gagged and bound over the ottoman? All right, all right, I digress. Harkins, you were crazy, unfit to be near children, let alone teach them to love books. You were old then, so you're dead or drooling in some poorly, I hope, state-run facility safely tucked away from youth. The last time I saw you was high school, long out of your grasp. Instantly, my friend gave you the finger. I didn't marvel his bravery or your face's shock. I remember how straight that finger was, straighter than any book spine, firmer than any hard cover. It rose above all, becoming the tallest point in our lowbrow town. It pointed the only way left to go. Um, It's hard. This is a new book, so I still don't know where all the pages are. It's very difficult. You'll have to bear with me. I've only been doing this 20 years without a book, so trying to learn how to deal with this like all my heroes do. This is called Baby. Sometimes it's me on top of a woman, the lights mercifully dim, hiding something I'm proving I'm slipping fast, but first in the mudslide down toward middle age. My hand in her blonde hair, her ear almost in my mouth when I sluice two syllables into her. Baby, beaten in time with my staccato pulse. Sometimes it's me working vernacular popular before I was born. This mortgage is killing me, baby. Next, I'll be calling men cats because, well, like, it just sounds groovy, baby. Sometimes it's me hearing my girlfriend deliver the one-two combination of what she needs from me to become whole. Babies. I know it best as me, the only child, the baby, always. I know it when I'm supposed to be doing a man, doing things men do, like valve jobs, drywall work, underwater welding, a good hunter-gatherer, but before starting these jobs, I feel what I am unrolling up my spine like a father's belt on my lily-white back. Baby. And uh, I'll just read two more. Let's see. I'm trying to... And I've got to keep the language good, so we're going to skip some stuff because we've got a G-rated audience here. Okay, this is a, a true thing about uh, a, a guy who, um, who they have footage of. They, have, they actually have black and white newsreel footage of this, and um, this is called um, The Ego and the Vanity of the Flying Tailor. And there were French intertitles in between um, on the newsreel footage that I saw. And I tried to translate it, and my French is pretty bad. But I believe it said, As though he sensed the horrible fate that awaited him, the unfortunate inventor hesitated long before throwing himself into the void. So, the ego and vanity of the flying tailor. British Pathé cameras were hand-cranked, intoxicating the leap science had made in the still-young century. Austrian tailor Franz Reichelt saw the gyro compass, the automobile self-starter, and the hydroplane perfected the previous year. Franz dreamt of wind resistance, of a man gliding to the ground. Taken with the times, he designed and built an overcoat which doubled as parachute. Tippled on ego, he invited the press to the largest man-made structure, 
the Eiffel Tower. After modeling his overcoat for cameras, he tipped his hat, and then came Franz's deviation from the plan. After promising to test his invention with a dummy, the limelight proved too appealing. Footage survives. We see 56 seconds of Franz's last morning, February 4th, 1912. He peers over the edge of the first deck, Paris terra firma 60 meters below. A time of light bulbs, of radio messages passing through us, anything was achievable. Anything but ignoring vanity, which forced him to the edge, and the limelight ablaze in the brittle, cold morning as it followed him down. I like to write a lot about nonfiction, true things. And I have, of course, one more of mine uh, that we're going to do. And uh, then I will turn the podium to my able and awesome co-panelists here. Poopyhead. Poopyhead is the term my niece uses for people who do not acquiesce. It's jargon of choice among the preschool set, apparently. Poopyhead playmates and babysitters and plenty of poopyhead teachers on the way, little Emily. Poopyhead coaches and backstabbing ex-best friends. Vapid teen idols and genetic freak models with poopyhead bodies. Prom date, virginity taker, noncommittal fiancés, ex-husband. Poopyheads. Poopyhead landlords, preachers, and wedding reception caterers. Mid-level managers maintaining poopyhead glass ceilings. Married men, non-vasectomied internet dating men. Poopyhead ombudsmen, whistling construction workers, and don't forget the big one, poopyhead president. <laughs> Emily, I like your melding of our waste with what's left over from what we put in ourselves. Fuel. With our minds and our beings. No, Emily, there's nothing wrong with you. All the millions of biologic happenings inside you each night, ensuring your eyes open every morning. Perfect. It's the others, Emily. It's them. Poopy heads all. Thank you very much. I forgot to ask you, Ron, what the title means. So, so yeah. But yeah, well, go ahead real quick, and then because John's going to answer uh, the same question too. The, the title is "Beneath Stars Long Extinct," and uh, it refers to uh, a line in one of the poems in the book. But it's also uh, about how we go outside at night, and we look up at the stars, and we see light from galaxies that may have long been extinct for millions of years, and the light is only reaching us right now. Okay, thank you very much, Ron. Um, and next uh, we have John uh, Murillo. And John, once again, could you talk about how you brought this collection together? Good morning. You guys hear me okay? All right. Um, I'm glad to be here. Thank you guys for coming out, and thank you, Reggie, for inviting us. Uh, I don't really know what the title of my book means. It's called Up Jump the Boogie. I've never really known what that means. It's a phrase that um, I'm familiar with from like, early hip-hop recordings, you know, Up Jump the Boogie to the Boogie to Beat, right? Um, what it means to me, though, it's, uh, and Yusef Komyaka, who's a teacher of mine uh, in grad school, told me that um, it goes back even further than hip-hop, that it's an old blues term, right? Um, so the book itself, to me, is kind of um, a work song, right? I think of the role that music, uh, specifically culture in general, has played in African-American uh, experience, right? 
um, through work songs, through gospel, through the blues, always something that kind of makes the experience a little more livable, right? So uh, this idea behind Up Jump the Boogie is uh, a series of work songs having to do with uh, struggle, right, things like that. Um, and the way the book came together, I was writing these poems over a few years, and I didn't really intend to write a book, per se, right? Um, I was just writing, and I consider these very much apprentice poems, but a close friend of mine, she tells me, you know, you got to put these poems out there. People need to read these poems. And um, I was a little hesitant, you know, for you know, various reasons. But uh, I met one of my heroes, Willie Perdomo, who was an early uh, New Yorkian poet. And he had this press he started called Cypher Books. And we have mutual friends in common, so he asked me if I had a manuscript, so I gave him what I had. And he said he wanted to publish the book. Well, the book didn't exist yet, so... He gave, gave me a deadline, and I was like, yeah, sure, I have something for you by then. I was like, oh, well, I do now. So I went, and I wrote the rest of the book. So I, I you know, laid out what I had right, on the floor, and then I saw where there were holes and what kind of arc was created and where I needed to you know, fill it in, and just got to work. And those later poems, although they didn't go through as many revisions as the earlier ones, um, I think I'm happy with those, the way they turned out. So it was kind of fortuitous how it all worked out. So I'm going to read... Uh, couple poems from the book. Uh, the first one is called Ode to the Crossfader. And um, again, so a little bit, I started out as, as a rapper. That's how I began writing. I'm 38. I started writing when I was, or rapping when I was 11, so 27 years ago, um, which gave me a, a long foreground, right, in this whole thing. Meter, rhyme, accent, metaphor, it's all, if you listen to good hip-hop, it's all in there. It is poetry. Um, so, hip hop shows out throughout the shows up throughout the book. Um, a crossfader, for those of you who aren't sure, um, there's an instrument that a DJ uses called a mixer. Right? He has a turntable here, a turntable here, and on that mixer there's a lever called a crossfader, which allows him to fade from one turntable to the other. So he's mixing, blending. <coughs> Is that cool? You hear that? Okay. You good. Okay. So um, it allows him to mix, cut, scratch, do all these things and blend the music. Uh, this is Ode to the Crossfader. Got this mix board itch, this bass line lifted from my father's dusty wax, 40 crates stacked in the back of the attic, this static in the headphones hum in the blood, this deep bass buckshot thump in the chest. Got reasons and seasons pressed to both palms. Two coins from each realm pressed to both palms. Just memory, memory cross faded and cued. These knuckles, nicks, and night sweat writes. This frantic abacus of scratch. Got blood in the crates, in the chest, in the dust. Field hollers to break beats. My father's dusty wax. My father's dust. Got reasons, got night sweats and hollers pressed to both palms. Break beats and hollers pressed to both palms. Static in the attic, stack crates of memory, memory, dust, blood, and memory. Cross faded and bass, cross faded and cued, cross faded and static, stack. Hollers got reasons in the dust, in the chest, got seasons in the blood, in the headphones hum. This deep, deep bass, bass, buckshot blood, pressed to both palms. My father's dust, pressed to both palms, got reasons, eh, reasons, eh, reasons, eh, reasons, reasons. <laughs> this idea of music showing up, I was talking to um, an audience the other night. Um, and as I'm growing into myself as a man, I'm knowing or noticing uh, 
the personal, I talked about earlier, like the historical um, role of music, right, uh, for a collective. But also, um, you know, I'm listening to music that my father listened to. And that's kind of scary, but <laughs> but I'm, I'm realizing what it, what it means, right? You know, you see, you know, your father going through his life experiences and the music that would um, soothe him, right, while he's living through his blues became, becomes my own soundtrack. Uh, huge Marvin Gaye fan. When I was living here in D.C., I actually um, lived in an apartment. I could look out my window and see Marvin Gaye's old high school, Cardoza High School out there. Any Marvin Gaye fans here? Yeah. All right, good, good. So you know the song Trouble Man. Okay. This poem's called Trouble Man. It's the bone of a question caught in your throat. Pre-dawn sides of the day's first traffic. Shoulders like fists under your skin. Say it's raining this morning. You just left a woman's blue musk and duvet to find devil knows what in the world. Your wet collar, too thin jacket, no match for pissed off sky gods. And say this car pulls near, plastic bag for passenger side window, trading rain for music, Marvin Gaye. And maybe you know this song. How long since the man you called father troubled the hi-fi, smoldering Newport in hand, and ran this record under a needle? How long since the man's broken falsetto colored every hour indigo? Years since he drifted, dreaming into rice fields, stammered crack Viet Cong, gunboats and helicopters swirling in his head. Years since his own long walks, silent returns, and Marvin's many voices, his only salve. He came up harder than you know, your father. Didn't make it by the rules. Your father came up hard, didn't get to make no rules. Graying beard, callous hands, fingernails thick as nickels, you were the boy who became that man without meaning to. And know now, a man's life is never measured in beats, but beat downs. Not line breaks, just breaks. You hear Marvin fade down the avenue, and it caresses you like a brick. Your father, Marvin, and men like them have already moaned every book you will ever write. This you know, baby. This you know. So this book is also a part Buildings Roman. So there's, you know, coming of age, things happening throughout. Um, and some of the poems stretch back as far as uh, the early 70s, late 70s. Uh, this one does. It's called Into the Dragon. And um, Reggie requested this. I was going to read it anyway, but, <laughs> but I'm glad you like it. Uh, you guys remember that movie, Into the Dragon? Okay. Bruce Lee, right? Classic. Now, my favorite scene in the movie, especially when I was a kid, was... Um, the scene early on where Jim Kelly, also known as Black Belt Jones, uh, <laughs> I think he's walking down the street and these like 10 squad cars just pull up, right? These cops jump out and I guess they're going to, you know, Rodney Kingham. 
But, you know, it's Black Belt Jones, so he's not going out like that. So, you know, he does his karate thing. You know, Afro doesn't get mushed at all. And by the end of the scene, is these sturdy cops lying out in the back, and he gets in one of their squad cars and just drives off, right? And I thought that was cool. So uh, <laughs> at five years old, it was a really strong image for me. This poem, uh, it's called Into the Dragon. It takes place in Los Angeles, 1976. For me, the movie starts with a black man leaping into an orbit of badges, tiny moons catching the sheen of his perfect black afro, arc kicks, karate chops, and 30 cops on their backs. It starts with the swagger, the cool lean into the leather front seat of the black and white he takes off in, deep hallelujahs of moviegoers drowning out the wah-wah guitar, salt and butter high fives, right on, brother, and daddy. Glowing so bright, he can light the screen all by himself. This is how it goes down. Friday night, and my father drives us home from the late show. Two heroes Cadillacing across King Boulevard. In the car's dark cab, we jab and clutch Jim Kelly and Bruce Lee with popcorn breath. And almost miss the lights flashing in the cracked side mirror. Now I know what's under the seat, but when the uniforms approach from the rear quarter panel, when the fat one leans so far into my father's window, I can smell his long day's work. When my father, this John Henry of a man, hides his hammer, doesn't buck, tucks away his baritone, license and registration shaking as if showing a bathroom pass to a grade school principal, I learned the difference between cinema and city, between the movie house cheers of old men and the silence that gets us home. So early on before I knew I wanted to be a poet, I thought I was going to become a professional breakdancer. Um, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, but maybe, you know, if I'm invited to, I'll bust a move for you guys or something. One of my favorite songs when I was a kid is called Renegades of Funk. Uh, by Africa Bombarding the Soul Sonic Force. And the title uh, takes, the title of this poem takes from that. I write in form a lot. Right? Um, something, just the way that I teach myself, way to practice, but also every now and then something good will come out of there, something decent will come out of it. Uh, this poem is a crown of sonnets. Right? So what you'll hear is the last line in one section will be the first line in the next, right? and it'll keep going on like that until the very end where the last line wraps around is actually the first line in the poem. So in this book, or this poem, the line is, when we were 12, we taught ourselves to fly. Okay, so you hear that coming about. And uh, the, the song, Renegades of Funk, I didn't put it in the book, but um, there's a refrain that says, uh, no matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. When we were 12, we taught ourselves to fly, to tuck the sky beneath our feet, to spin the world on fingertips, to pirouette on elbows, heads, and backs, to run away while standing still. So when Miss Jefferson, her eyebrows shaved and painted black, the spot of lipstick on her one good tooth, would praise the genius Newton, I knew then to keep her close, to trust her like a chicken hawk at Colonel Sanders. I refute your laws, oppressor. I'm the truth you cannot stop. Busting head spins on her desk, a moonwalk out the door, referred to Mr. Brown's detention. 
Jefferson, Newton, Brown, everybody trying to keep a brother down. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Two, attention, rhythms why they keep us. Down in Memphis, blues men beg the sky to pour down liquor. Empty bottles bearing hands, a pawn shop banjo gathers dust. Guitars sit idle, songs forgotten. Ghosts come late to find the crossroads cluttered. Strip malls now where haints once hung. The young, it seems, forget the drum and how it bled, the dream and how it fed the mothers on the auction block. But rhythm's why they keep us, rhythm's why we've kept up. Cotton fields and backs that creak, a song for every lash, a cry on beat, and blues sucked dry. The strip malls bleed the ghosts from banjos, hollers caught in greed. The ghosts, the angels, holocaust, the need to shake these shackles, field songs in our bones. As if at 12 we knew all this, we named our best moves free. To break and pop lock, blood and bruises marking rights. We'd gather, dance ourselves electric, stomp and conjure storm, old lightning in our limbs. We thunderstruck maroons, machete-wielding silhouettes, reject the fetters, come together still. Some call it capoeira. Call it street dance. We say culture. Say survival. Baez Birambao or a boombox in the boogie down. A killing art as play. An ancient killing art to break us free. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now, now, now. Oh, Lord, send something down to break us free. Says, send us something now to set us free. Swing low your chariot to rescue we. The calls went up in every blessed field. The people shouting, singing in the fields. They lit the torches, compromised the yield. This earthly house is going to soon decay. Say, look like Master's house going to soon decay. I got my castle where he planned to stay. Some waited in the hills till nightfall came, an exodus of thousands. When the night came, they built their fires, sang into the flames. Upon the mountaintop, the good Lord spoke, and out his mouth come the fire and smoke. The art of spitting fire, how to smoke a fool without a gun. See, we learned that too. We studied master poets, Big Daddy Kane, not Keats. Rakim, not Rilke. Raw, I ain't no joke, our nightingales and Orpheus. And few there were among us couldn't ride a beat in strict tetrameter. Impromptu odes and elegies, instead of slanting rhymes, we gangsterlined them. Kicking 17 entendre couplets just to fuck with old Miss Jefferson, the Newton freak. And sometimes we even got her out her seat, her 10 thin digits waving side to side, held high and hiding nothing where our eyes could see. Six. And we knew nothing but what eyes could see. The burnt-out liquor stores and beauty shops, mechanics' lots, abandoned, boarded-up pastrami shacks where it seemed like every day we used to ditch class, battle centipedes and space invaders, gone, or going fast. What eyes could see was flux. The world and us and all we knew like smoke. So, renegade we did, Against erasure, time, and hell, we thought, against the reaper, too. 
We left our names in citadels, sprayed hieroglyphs in church, our rebel yells in aerosol. We bomb, therefore we are. We break, therefore we are. We spit the gospel, therefore are. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. The walls are sprayed in gospel. This is for the ones who never made the magazines. Between break beats and bad breaks, broken homes and flat broke. Caught but never crushed, the stars we knew we were who recognized the shine despite the shade. We renegade in rhyme, in dance, on trains and walls. We renegade in lecture halls, the yes, yes, y'alls in suits, construction boots and aprons. Out of work a nine to five, still renegade. Those laid to rest, forgotten, renegades. In dirt too soon with kiriaki pun and pock, renegade, 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 renegade. I sing your names in praise. Remember why? When we were 12, we taught ourselves to fly. Thank you very much, John. And next up, our great visitor from the West, Paul Nelson. And tell us about uh, the time before slaughter. Well, I'm delighted to be here, very honored. And thank you for coming and providing an audience. That helps. Good poetry. Um, A Time Before Slaughter is the book. Uh, Slaughter is the original name of Auburn, Washington, which is a town 30 miles south of Seattle. And it was named after Lieutenant William Alloway Slaughter. And I'll get into that in, in one of the poems of the book. And the process was uh, learning about the fact that the town had been named Slaughter, which I thought was very interesting. Um, learning that one of the rivers is actually called the Stuck River, uh, part, one of the channels that one of the rivers goes through. So you start with such rich words, Slaughter and Stuck, and you know it's like the poetry is already there for you. So the more I started digging into the local history and the more I started reading uh, you know, new American poetry like William Carlos Williams Patterson and Charles Olson's The Maximus Poems, and trying to figure out why I ended up in this town uh, that was named Slaughter, that had these kind of things going on, uh, was interesting. So it was an opportunity to look at my own personal mythology and that, that mythology of the town and see how it intersected. And so the book is pretty much chronological. The poem's about the Japanese-Americans' uh, Uh, One of those was written very early, and I put it at the end of that section. Then there's a section called Nine Sonnets for Pop and Other Poems, which are my own personal history in Auburn, my relationship with my father. And then the book ends with Elegies for Slaughter, which are written after Rilke, the Duino Elegies, and after George Bowering's Carisdale Elegies. And it really ties in some of the archetypal imagery from Auburn and some of the stories of the Native Americans with my own history. So there's there's a conjunction near the end of the book. So, but being inspired by the music that just happened, I'm going to read my jazz, one of my jazz poems. And uh, I lived in Baltimore in 1984 and 85 and had a jazz show on WGRX 100.7 FM. That's my first full-time radio job was out here. So I didn't play a whole lot of uh, Monk on the, on the jazz show. It was more of, a, you know, I guess smooth jazz. We, we, we didn't really have that name back then, and it wasn't that bad, you know. We play some MJQ and stuff that was more mellow. I probably could have gotten away with Monk plays Ellington. But anyway, this is uh, First Breath for Bud and Monk. Bud Polythelonious Monk. First Breath, Intake, Sorrow Mitigation, Visiting Mintons, A Muted Roar, Solitude. Then the swarm of warm notes between hallucination, psycho-physical breakdowns, keyboard mastery, unparalleled technique, bouncing. In walked Bud Powell bouncing. 
Monk, precise, spare angles, reflections, these wrong notes connote perfection. The palpable wit, inner child uncoiled, a groove elegant, conscious, surreal, oral libations, poured on thick. Breath, fade, dissolve the eye, nests in a dance, circumnavigation of the linear dimension, future wafting in in an effervescent present. This is now, was now, is eternity, an eternal wail, twist, a curve, a break, and pause, space, separating notes, a dissertation, divination, muse as tireless dancer from Hackensack, universe prehending itself, a bop configuration, a swing, a swoop, a blue note rolled, evolving science of sound, ear can be luscious and visceral. There is blood on the table. And I, in the minefield of repression and domination, dance to the tenor solo Coltrane. Nothing left but a wisp. Remnants of genius burnt clean through. Ghost hunched over the keys. Something left to mitigate our pain. All right, the first poem in the book is uh, the title poem. It's in three parts, and it includes some... Walshootseed words. Walshootseed is southern Puget Sound Salish dialect. To give you an example, Chief Seattle is referred to as Chief Seattle. So it was a little easier to say Seattle than Seattle. But Vi Hilbert saved the language from extinction. She passed away about a year and a half ago. Uh, an amazing, respected elder. Takshablu, her native name. And so there are some words in the Lashutsi, and I will, or Walshutsi, the Southern Puget Sound dialect, and I will try and pronounce them as best I can. But this gives you a sense of the, some of the historical. It sets up the book. So, a time before slaughter. One, slaughter is a man, Lieutenant William Alloway Slaughter, a dependable man, energetic officer, a crack shot with a rifle. Slaughter is a town founded by Levi Ballard. He plotted slaughter, settled first by Midwesterners from Illinois and Wisconsin. Slaughter is a notion, an idea, a process infected full with the dominator virus, what infects to this day, SUV or ram charger, tailgating driver with stoic face. Slaughter's the sunset apricot over West Hill, perennial and the sky wide and complex. Slaughter is Stellar Jay's loud return in March and memory of Chief Kanasket, November 25, 1855. There is no memorial here for him. Slaughter is a baptism in the Christian tradition of total sobriety, a warning about the changers and the loss of the land. Slaughter is vapor trails, what head toward Grace Steeple as fog enshrouds West Hill April. Slaughter in May, a blizzard of cherry blossoms with each stiff wind and their pirouette in the wake of a speeding car. Slaughter is Indian Tom and Moonlight Rescue of Johnny King, October 28, 1855, by canoe down the green to the Duwamish until safe with Marines on the sloop of war, Decatur, and soon Wisconsin. Slaughters the sound of freight train horns to the west, somewhere under the crescent moon. Nutka roses wide open this side of the June stuck. Slaughter is July heron, landing in the river or standing tall, hunting fish. 
Slaughter is the rush of stuck through rocks on a rainy August Friday. Slaughter is the rush of stuck through rocks on a rainy August Friday. Two. Slaughter is Executive Order 9066 and trains full with Nikkei exiles and army escorts headed to Pinedale near Fresno Friday, May 8, 1942 and more away on Mother's Day. A thousand more on May 15, 1,015, over two-thirds, 684 American citizens. Slaughter continues while the slaughter powers that be hosted a dance for the troops at the VFW. Men well-fed, slaughter is patriotic. By May 22, the last train left. Sympathetic neighbors with cookies, cakes, candies, and rides. Like we are going on a real picnic, says May Isiri Yamada. One white girl wanted to go along. May and Frank Natsuhara returned. Most didn't. The store survived. Most of the land lost, divvied up, sold cheap. Slaughter is the view of cherry trees one last time from prison trains bound for California. Slaughter's the roar of stuck at sunset on overcast August Sunday. Three ducks nestled amidst the rocks of the milky August stuck. The prop plane were cutting through the August clear blue morning sky while sunlight streams through yoga windows. Slaughter continues. Three. Slaughter is Ilalco. Now just a school. Ilalco comes together. Buckleshoot. Place where you can see everything or muckleshoot. Bisquadis, Lake Dolof, a place that has whales. Stakapsh, dwellers at the place what was plowed through, plowed by whales. Ask Elk Woman or the whales themselves. Whales bailed on slaughter, plowed their way to the sea, left a stuck river in their wake. Slaughter is Skopapsh and Smolkopsh and Flea's house, Chutaboltwa. Elk's daughter married Flea. They used to be huge. Let sleeping elk women lie. Slaughter is Stuxid, a trail to the water. Dok, hint home to Indian Dan in a fine spring. Tiliquats, strawberries at the side of the Brandon Place. And Squabsti, water lilies at Green River's Bend. Spobalco, for the old channel of the white, now dry. When the changer transforms, he means business. Mean business. But Elk Woman's mother, the mother of all, cannot be... Slaughter is the rush of stuck through rocks on a rainy August Friday. It's a poem called The River's Dream. The slaughter day fades into night and the stuck river's dream begins as a silver shimmer. She is back to a time of red paint power, what reflects a less fearful state, the outline of bare trees and a time before blackberries and relentless settler prehension time of red paint power, end of November, when the harvest is in and her dreams are protected by miles of fog. So I'm going to take a break from the Slaughter Book to read a few of these short poems. Allen Ginsberg created a form called American Sentences, sort of based on haiku, Americanized haiku. And I'll read a few of these and uh, probably read one more and call it a show. Um, So you know, like haiku, imagistic, unlike haiku, going across the page like that, because haiku goes down the page, but Alan felt that everything in America was pretty much linear, left to right, so 
one sentence going across, 17 syllables, an American sentence. February 9th, 2001, one small spat, and you reconstruct front room into bedroom in exile. February 8th, 02, next to condom dispenser is written, this is the worst gum ever. <clears throat> April 9th, 03, maintenance man leaves a note, says, can't fix your faucet. Its threads are striped. <clears throat> now you got it, right? April 22nd, 04, if war happens and you don't see coffin photos, is the soldier dead? This will give you a sense of Seattle's mythology. Uh, August 21st, 05. Seattle license plate holder. Yard work is for people who don't kayak. More recent ones. From January 5th, 09. Would her Thanksgiving stuffing been this hard to flush had we eaten it? Mm. March 17th, 09. Augusto's online dating prospect. She's between three and eight feet tall. And May 15th, 09, she opens my copy, Erotic Poem Translations, An Old Lover's Hair. I hate when that happens. It was red. There was no getting away from it. So the last poem I'll read, I, re I referenced um, Frank Natsuhara, who lived in slaughter his whole life, except for the time that he was living in a concentration or, you know, relocation camp which is an amazing story, Executive Order 9066. You know, we think of FDR as being so liberal, and today, by today's standards, who knows what we'd consider him. But he signed Executive Order 9066, so Japanese people either sold their land on the cheap or their stores. But Frank's story is a little different. And there's a reference to an African proverb that says, when an elder dies, it's like a library burns to the ground. So there's an angular reference to that. So... Again, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for your kind attention. And this, I'll leave you with Elegy for Frank. The train stopped in Slaughter one more time last week. Frank Natsuhara punched ticket, memory in Doppler rhythm, and train horns of one last goodbye. Another library, now Valley Loam. How did they save the store? How did it feel, prisoner of race? How the barbed wire humiliation? Oh, Frank Natsuhara, how will they remember you in this, your home, this big valley? Plum petals sailing in a spring gust, juice from strawberry dripping from chin. Thanks. Thank you so very much, Paul. Um, and now, Jan O'Gill and the Underlife. Now, I know a little bit about I know that it took you about two years to pull this together. Will you also have the poems on the floor as well? Or like everybody else, apparently? Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, so my book is Underlife, and it did take about two years to pull together, but that's after writing, you know, for quite a few years. Um, I had started, I guess, collecting poems uh, during a time when I had my second child and I was, you know, sort of at home and I couldn't get out all the time because I had these two toddlers at home. So I started a blog, Poet Mom, and I reached out to other writers, uh, connected, got feedback on my poetry, and then really had, you know, something 
thicker than what a binder clip could hold. So it was time to do the laying out on the floor, which I think is a common theme with everyone. Uh, and I did find a rhythm, and it turned out to be poems about you know, my early childhood and then kind of moving into more of an adult phase and talking about love and sex and family and life, you know, all the good stuff. So it really came together quite well. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy with the collection. And, you know, the nice thing about poems, I do see a few that I would tweak now, and you can do that. Even though they're in the collection, you know, I, I can still come back to them and, and, you know, tinker here and there. So Reggie also asked me to read a poem that I was going to read anyway. Uh, I'm from Virginia, but I live in Massachusetts now, so I get homesick quite a bit. And um, food is a big theme with me, so uh, this is my, in a way, it's my ode, ode to Virginia. But, you know, you'll read it, and then you'll think about lunch. How to make a crab cake. Start with your own body. The small bones of the hands moving toward the inlets of the fingers. Wanting it too much invites haste. You must love what is raw and hungered for. Think of the crab cake as the ending, as you till away at the meat, digging for errant shells and jagged edges. Always it's a matter of guesswork, but you hold it together by the simplest of ingredients, for this is how the body learns to be generous, to forgive the flaws inherited and enjoy what lies ahead. Yet you never quite know when it happens, the moment when the lumps transcend egg and breadcrumbs, the quiver of oil in a hot pan to become unworldly, the manifold of pleasure with the sweet ache of crab still bright on your tongue. So before I leave Maryland, I'm going to have a Maryland crab cake. <laughs> uh, another food poem. In praise of okra. No one believes in you like I do. I sit you down on the table, and they overlook you for fried chicken and grits, crab cakes and hush puppies, black-eyed peas and succotash and sweet potatoes and watermelon. Your stringy, slippery texture reminds them of the creature from the movie Aliens. But I tell my friends, if they don't like you, they are cheating themselves. You were brought from Africa as seeds, hidden in the ears and hair of slaves. Nothing was wasted in our kitchens. We took the unused and the throwaways and made feasts. We taught our children how to survive, adapt. So I write this poem in praise of okra and the cooks who understood how to make something out of nothing. Your fibrous skin melts in my mouth Green flecks of flavor, still tough, unbruised, part of the fabric of earth, soul food. So for many years, my father was in the military, and he, um, he was a master sergeant. But early on, you know, he was a grunt, and he had to do a lot of things that he wasn't keen on. Uh, but he did it because, you know, he, he did it for country, he did it for family. Service. The military needed cheap labor to move office furniture to the newly remodeled Pentagon. So they had the grunts do the work. 
My father made the 300-mile round trip for five weeks to get the job done. Sometimes he gave rides to the other enlisteds and charged a small fee to those who needed a lift. My father, who in 1969 would have done anything for his wife and newborn daughter, put desks together for generals and the elite brass in the oppressive summer heat in the summer of love, wiping his sweaty face in the mirror of a bathroom once marked coloreds only in segregated Virginia. One day, he said, the higher-ups will realize the world is put together by men like me. Well, I didn't talk about the title. So Under Life was actually not the title of my book. Originally, it was going to be The Kerning, which is a publishing term that refers to the spacing between letters uh, in a word, and the publisher couldn't sell that. So they went with, <laughs> so we went with the second choice, Under Life, which is a, a word in a poem, in the last poem of the book. Underlife, for me, represents the, the unsaid. It's sort of the things we always think but never talk about. And coincidentally, I went to NYU uh, and did my graduate work there. I did my undergraduate work at uh, Old Dominion University. And Toy Derricotte was my first teacher. Uh, Toy Derricotte was friends with Sharon Olds and had written a blurb on the back of Toy's book, Sharon wrote this for Toy, and used the word underlife. So I've had both of these women as teachers. They've both been, been heroes of mine, and it was just nice to bring that extra element into the title. So after that long explanation, I'm going to read the poem with the title that didn't make it to the title of the book, which is The Kerning. And for this poem, it really does refer to for me, the spacing between family members. Sometimes we're on the same page, sometimes we're not. The Kerning. Today I spent the morning brushing pink crayon from your teeth. This tells me you know how to eat words. You've tasted those intangible calories that fill my cavernous heart. You're beginning to understand how sloppy and brutal the imagination can be. I put my hands between your pearly teeth and yank petals of paper from your mouth. Someday I will teach you how to read words that are not there, show you how to breathe without disturbing the air. Nothing lives outside of us in this overprinted world. Decide for yourself, then let me know if you can eat a crayon without leaving a mark. And I guess I should mention that was for my then three-year-old daughter, She's now four and a half, and she's out of that crayon-eating phase, thank goodness. So I'm going to read two poems that are not in the book. Um, I think this poem sort of describes my, my fear in life. I have two kids, one's six, and the other's four and a half. What my kids will write about me in their future tell-all book. They will say that no was my favorite word more than stop or eat or love. That some mornings I'd rather stay in bed, laptop on lap, instead of making breakfast, that I'd rather write than speak. They will say they have seen me naked, front side, back side, none of which were my good side. They will say I breastfed too long. In the tell-all book my kids will write, they'll tell how I let them wrinkle like raisins in the bathtub so I could watch Big Poppy at the plate. 
They'll talk about how I threw out their artwork, the watercolors and the turkey hands, when I thought they weren't looking and when I knew they were. They will say my voice was a slow torture, that my singing caused them permanent hearing loss. In the tell-all book my kids will write as surely as I am writing this, they will say I cut them off mid-sentence just because I could. They'll tell you how I got down on my knees, growling my low, guttural disapproval, how I grabbed their ears, pinched the backs of their arms, yet they never quite knew who was sadder for it. They'll quote me in saying, I cry in the shower. It's the only safe place I can go. They will say she was our sweetest disaster. They will say I love them so much it hurt. And I'm going to close with the poem that I, I'm actually heading back up to Massachusetts later today because there is a um, poetry award that I'm up for. I'm a finalist in a contest for a, a poem in a contest sponsored by the city of Brockton, and it's actually held by the Brockton Public Library. So two library events in one day. I feel very lucky for that. So this is the poem. A Mother's Tale. I tell my son that the best poems are written in the sand and washed away with the tide. I say the moon controls the waves, uses the wind to rake the shore. It is an open invitation to fill the world with words because like seashells, you can never have too many. I tell him to wade into the water, start a conversation with the tiniest grain on the beach the one that catches his eye with its glint. It will tell him everything he needs to know about this moment, about how to stay in it a little longer. It will tell him how to be, for an instant, the thing he most wants to become. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jan. And now to uh, take us home and represent Baltimore, Shelley. Um, and please tell us, how in the world did Stalin get to Aruba? How did Stalin get to Aruba? Well, um, I guess when I read the title poem, um, okay. you'll find out. And I guess just to say a few words about um, the composition of this as a, as a book, I think the organizing of the individual poems for me was harder than writing the poems. I mean, that was much more of an, an agonizing process. But I did find that... The, uh, this wasn't originally Stalin and Aruba. It was excavating, I think, was one of the many titles I flitted through. But I started, um, I had a few, uh, there's a lot of dramatic monologues in this collection, and I did a few from the perspective of these people on the periphery of these, like, large-scale uh, evil events. Um, you know, Hitler's suicidal girlfriends, Lenin's embalmer, um, and a lot of the women on the periphery of the Red Terror. And I found they were kind of like going to fill in the gaps, as you guys were talking about, fill in the gaps of the manuscript, like, oh, well, here and here. And then they kind of um, took over. So, um, yeah, that's how Stalin um, got to Aruba, I guess, and got in here and sort of took over the manuscript. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, start with the title poem to get that out of the way. And this one's called Stalin and Aruba. Stalin invented the art of cropping. Chopping Trotsky out of every archived rally, removing the heads of his friends from family albums, splicing his own head into a childhood of wheat fields, farm animals, fruit trees. 
Every time we eliminate red eye, 10 pounds or 10 years, that troublesome X from our photos, we do the same or a very different thing, depending, most would say, on our intent, trying to obscure or clarify. Some might ask if we intend to deceive. But simplicity and clarity always obfuscate. Actions become ideas we only squint at, too small or dazzling to see properly. Stalin's favorite trick, cropping out his own head, enlarging it, then pasting it above dozens of girl heads bound in white and red kerchiefs. He knew a good photo is more than propaganda. The good papa, he was reflecting back only what we wanted, needed to see. Just like I might superimpose Stalin onto someone's vacation photos, Stalin in Aruba, decked out in a tank suit with red racing stripes down each side, open-mouthed, amazed, not by the chrome and glass of the capitalists or their neon string bikinis, pierced navels and nipples, frothy daiquiris in 18 flavors, but by the dozen disposable cameras flashing white, poolside, one after another. Blinking, Stalin rubs his stunned eyes. What will we later make of all these snapshots? And why so many? They will be archived in shoeboxes in the shadows under our beds, not among the copper pipes and dark metal guts of a Kremlin utility room, but kept nonetheless. To what end? I'll leave Stalin in Aruba, amazed but peering past the camera's flash and smudge out all the rest until the bleached teeth and winking diamond rings blur together, simply dazzling. This one is uh, called the DACA of Leonid Serebrikov, and uh, DACAs are just vacation homes. And there's a, a little epigraph I'm going to read first before we uh, jump into it. So all of these are, are based on a well-researched, I would say, and based on actual historical events. So, days after his neighbor Sarah Brykov's arrest, Prosecutor Vashinsky demanded the DACA for himself. After Stalin's death, the Sarah Brykovs managed to get half the property returned to them, but the Vashinskys kept the other half. Thus, today, 60 years after their father was shot by their neighbor, the Sarah Brykovs spend each weekend next to the Vashinskys. I can't take my eyes off it. You're a lucky man, Leonid, Vyshinsky said. The Serebrikovs laughed it off, this envious neighbor who wore a jacket and pince-nez, why gardening? Only Anna was unnerved, the way he watches. The children caught him caressing their trellised roses, poaching their gooseberries, and his lumpy wife nosed around when she stopped by to borrow eggs. Old Alzbetta found her fingering the dining linens, measuring the front windows, crazy. But he is the new state prosecutor, Leonid said. It's in his nature to investigate. 
until, taking meals on the glazed sun porch, he saw Vashinsky take clippings of the hosta spreading along the shady side of their porch. Or, while planting early seeds, found him peeping through the wisteria, planted specifically to keep him out. Vashinsky was embarrassed, shrill. Lovely Daka, Leonid. In his Lubyanka cell, Leonid remembered how Vashinsky had overpraised Anna's peonies, offered to oil all their door hinges. After the interrogations, Vashinsky hovered, once even double-kissed Leonid's cheek, in stale, rusted whiskey breath, hissed, Today, I moved in. Okay, and I'm just going to do two more. I know we're a little tight for time. Um, there are a bunch in here that are... Uh, dramatic monologues that are based on uh, headstones in the area. So a lot of these came from um, St. John's Cemetery up the road in Kingsville. And this is one, um, it seems kind of appropriate for early spring, called What They Left Out of My Obituary for uh, Father Pritikin, who was dead at age 85. You've heard of me. When I was 17, I threw the perfect pass, 70 yards, breaking the school record. Those present said, the pig skin arched into the sun, but I saw nothing, only that same sun spinning spots while my breath smoke pawed the cold. You wouldn't have heard I spent my 21st in a Guatemalan hut, shivering with heat, brown-skinned women crowding me, muttering, Padre, Padre, and forcing me to drink hot tea. Or that at seven, I found my mother's razor in the bathtub nook and slipped my thumb across the blade. As blood spilled forth, I knew nothing but dead leaves crisping underfoot. When I was conceived, it was winter. That spring, the snow never melted, just crusted into ice. My mother toe-heeled, toe-heeled as belly swelled. Or did she run, hoping to slip, to jar me loose? At fourteen, I found freckles, light and flat, across the clavicle of a girl on the field hockey team, constellations spilling across bare shoulders while the trees pulsed green. And I'll make this the last one. This is uh, the dictator's daughter from a nursing home um, in Wisconsin. As I was mentioning, uh, we were speaking just before that um, uh, Stalin's daughter, Svetlana, um, after she defected to the United States, and she was kind of back and forth, back and forth. But she is hiding out in Wisconsin. And what was really interesting is a colleague sent me a news article from last week that uh, an independent filmmaker at the Madison um, Wisconsin Film Festival actually tracked her down. And uh, they, sh they should be uh, kind of screening the uh, film, I guess, in the next week or so. But uh, she makes it a habit to move every two years from, like, nursing home to nursing home um, around Wisconsin just so the press can't track her down. And it's in uh, three parts. Okay. The dictator's daughter from a nursing home in Wisconsin. One. My father had such a pure tenor, he could have sung professionally. A matter of circumstances, revolution or opera... But his favorite, Rigoletto, if he learned from it, taught that daughters 
are dangerous, stupid, willing to sacrifice themselves only for the men who deceive them. And he saw Jews everywhere. I made sure Jewish hands first up my skirt. Alexei repented from his cell in Siberia, but I did not. The next year, I married a Jew. My father threw a party when we divorced. Two. Even before Mama put a bullet in her head, his favorite aria was the Duke of Mantua's from Act Three. He sung Ladani Mobili at parties when coaxed, when shaving in his shirt sleeves. He is always miserable, he that trusts a woman. His tenor was ripe, bursting open on the long notes, somersaulting off the arched ceiling in our airless daca. E sempre misero, che ale safida. That was 17 years before Paulina was arrested in her squirrel fur coat for speaking Yiddish to Goldemir, for having been Mama's best friend, putting dangerous ideas in her head. Three. He could smell me changing, not just the undertones of Mama's perfume dangling in the air. I had one of her decanters hidden in my viola case. But whatever else seeped out, salty underground, the copper of my monthly blood. In the end, dazed by fainting spells, maddened by sore gums and slipping false teeth, Jews again. The family doctor in leg irons, all doctors, Jews, all Jews trying to spike his soup. All the top doctors being beaten in the Lubyanka, and those left didn't dare treat him, so he lay for days in urine-soaked pants. Aria means air, air. In the end, he couldn't get enough, purpling up. It sounds metallic, like scraping tin, when a voice that's drowning hourly finally hits the bottom of its range. It was the chord of his voice that held me all these years, and when that chord snapped, they waited outside my door, wanting to bundle my grief in their aprons and carry it out into the streets. And one of the servants dropped to her knees, wailing like women in the villages do, proof that something could splinter through the arched ceiling, not just hang below it, Proof that there was air enough. Thanks. All right. Well, we want to thank uh, you all for coming and our poets, Ron Egatz, John Murillo, Paul Nelson, January Gill O'Neill, and Shelley Puhak. Thank you so very, very much for a wonderful, wonderful morning.